Well, this morning, we're going to be kind of bouncing over throughout the Bible. We're going to be talking about baptism. And I wanted to start, though, with just uh, talking about the gospel. There are two texts in the Bible where Jesus makes a very startling statement. If you're somebody who wants to get to heaven, like me, (laughs) don't we all want to end up with God in eternity? He makes two very startling statements. I'm going to read these two verses. The first is out of Matthew 18, and the other is out of Mark, Mark 10. In Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, we read these words. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The word I want you to zero in on in that entire block of scripture is the word never. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a heavy word. And then in Mark 10, 13 through 15, it says this. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. This is Jesus. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Heavy, again. On two different occasions, Jesus told his disciples that unless they become like children or receive the kingdom of God like a child, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I can't think of a more important thing, question for us to ponder than this. What did Jesus mean? When he said we have to be like a child to enter heaven, to gain eternal life. I looked it up in my Bible, in my Strong's Concordance, and the word here for child is pahidion, which means infant. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like an infant, a pahidion, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine, I don't know, think of one of the infants in our church. There's a number of them. You can imagine one of them coming up here. Unless you become like this person, this little person who still poops their pants, (laughs) you can't get into the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's saying. Well, first, let's take a look. I want to get to the most important question, which is what does it mean? But first, let's tackle what I think it doesn't mean. Oftentimes, I think this is misunderstood. Jesus is not saying, and I'm going to show you this from Scripture in just a second, that we must come to him with a childish intellect, a simple-minded and unquestioning intellect. That's what some people think these verses are saying. Almost like, don't bother me with difficult, uncomfortable questions. I just believe like a child. (laughs) They might think to themselves, I've come to Jesus in a simple, unquestioning way. But Jesus is not saying leave your brain at the door when you read the Bible or go to church. 
There is no virtue in being intellectually lazy or incurious. If you think about it, if God wanted you to come to faith in him like that, he would have given us a coloring book or a poster rather than this. 66 books, some of them very difficult to understand. No, when we come to the Bible, there's difficult questions and deep thoughts to ponder. God gave you something that sets you apart in a remarkable way. Not the only thing that sets you apart from the other creatures on planet Earth, but one of the things that sets human beings apart is our intellect. That's a matter of design. God gave you a wonderful intellect so that you could know him, so that you could understand his word and explore the world that he made for us to live in. He gave you your mind so that you could know him with it. I don't think he is glorified by blind, unthinking obedience, but by our desire to know him, understand him, live in relationship with him. He doesn't want robots. He wants you. With all of your messy questions and your sense of wonder and your desire to explore and understand things. God made man in such a way that we would be satisfied in him. And God is intellectually satisfying. But how can I know for sure that Jesus is not saying that we must come to him with the innocence and the simple-mindedness of a child? Whenever we have questions like these, I think it's best to let the Bible explain the Bible. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14.20 it says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Or speaking on the importance of growing to maturity in the knowledge of God, he says this in Ephesians 4, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. There he's saying being simple-minded like a child makes you an easy mark for the liar. Or he says this in Hebrews 5, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying you have to be smart to be a Christian. (laughs) That's not true. What is needed to know about the gospel is so simple that I believe even the most limited intellect can grasp what is needed to know in order to be saved. But that's the starting point of your journey with God. That's where it all begins. And you're drawn there from that place into an exploration of him in his word with your mind. So I don't think he means that what it is to be saved is to be simple, unquestioning, to accept everything that comes your way without any sort of a kicking of the tires, intellectually speaking. So what does he mean? I think this is the most important point for us to come to. And to illustrate this, I want to tell a story. I I, I wrote this story down in a midweek email around this time last year, actually. But when we were living in Florida... My, I had this idea that I would 
go start fishing with my children. I had this idea that as my kids got older, we would love fishing together, and it would just be something we would do. And I haven't been very good about following up on that, mostly because we moved to a place where the water is frozen all the year. And I haven't gotten uh, myself to go out ice fishing very much. But at the time, I thought, I'll get these kids going ice fishing. And I actually have, uh, Dave Wheaton gave me some ice fishing stuff. I need to start doing that. But then I thought, I'll get these kids fishing. So one day, we went out to Watertown Lake. And there in North Florida, the water is as black as coffee. It's from all the tannic acid in the oaks down there. And my kids went clomping out this wooden pier that went out past the weedy fringes of the lake. It was a big L-shaped pier, and it went out where the water was deep. And I went out behind them, and of course, some of my kids were really little. I think Miles was four at the time, our youngest. And of course, when you take little kids fishing, they're not actually fishing. You're actually doing all the fishing for them. They can't cast or bait the hook or untangle their lines. It's a constant job to keep them going. So I was working getting lines untangled and baiting the hooks, and Miles had gone to the edge of the dock, and I told him, don't go near the water. But my little four-year-old went over, and he was looking over the edge, and I heard him say something about alligator bubbles. They were obsessed with alligators. It's Florida. And then I heard a splash. And I looked up, and Miles was gone. My four-year-old had fallen into coffee-black water, in a lake absolutely infested with alligators. (laughs) Lucy, to my left, is jumping up and down, and all all she can say is, he fell in! Jack yells, daddy, daddy, daddy! I run to the edge, and I look over, and he is gone. There's no sign of him. Well, what did I do? Did I yell down into the water? I told you not to go near the edge. Serves you right. No. (laughs) Guys, I jumped in to Watertown Lake, and I felt around in that water until my hands gripped this warm, fuzzy ball of miles, and I came back up into the sunlight. And there was a toothless old man, I don't know where he came from on the dock, and he pulled Miles up and set him down. Guys, that is a picture of what it means to be saved as a child, in my mind. When Miles fell in, did he he disobey me? Yes, he did. He broke my rules. Did mankind fall? Yeah, into a dark place where death was absolutely certain. Cut off, cold, separated from light and warmth and the presence of the Father. Miles couldn't do anything to save himself. He was only a pahidion. He couldn't breathe underwater, of course. He couldn't swim. Even if he'd been able to walk along the bottom of the lake, somehow, miraculously, there were so many weeds he couldn't have got out. In saying that we must come to God as a pahidion, an infant, he is saying that we must look away from a prideful insistence on helping ourselves. You can never shoulder the burden of your own salvation. We must trust in Jesus alone for our salvation and not in our own merit. 
I think this is what Christmas is all about. Christmas is the moment when Jesus jumped off the dock and he came down right into the dark place where we were, cut off and separated. He came down into the water. He became like one of us so that he might lift us up out of there. We bring God nothing but our need. Miles couldn't contribute to his own salvation from Watertown Lake, and you can't contribute to your salvation from sin and death. You're just caught there. You're dead. You need a Savior to come and get you. And that's what Christianity is. We have no righteousness of our own, no wisdom of our own, nothing by which to earn our own salvation. But amazingly, that which we could never earn has been offered to us as a free gift. Romans 4, 4 through 5 says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, you're going to get what's coming to you. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Do you see the importance in the shade of meaning in those words? To the one who does not work but believes, his faith is counted as righteousness. Not he is righteous, but his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I ask this question a lot when I'm teaching on this passage, but what's the difference between a wage and a gift? A wage is something that you earn. It's something you deserve. It says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what's the difference between a wage and a gift? A wage is something you earn and deserve. A gift is just something that's given because the person who's giving it is awesome. Not necessarily because you, the receiver, are. When Christians say that they are Christians, they are saying that I'm, Christianity is not about good people. It's about a great, awesome, perfect God who has shown mercy to people who are profoundly less than good. That's the story. That's the amazing truth. Galatians 2 says this, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. We know that a person isn't made right with God because they've checked all the boxes. But through faith in Jesus Christ, that's what saves Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now it's important to start here before we segue into talking about baptism because baptism is really meant and intended as a proclamation of these earlier truths. It's meant as like a a living sermon illustration about the truth of the gospel, about the basis of our hope. In the time we have left, between now and when we actually are going to have a baptism, which I'm super excited about, I want to talk about the why, the how, the who, the when, and the what of baptism. And by the way, this is a somewhat controversial topic. We have a lot of different denominations in the United States, a lot of different understanding about baptism. So if there's some shade of disagreement, that's okay. Uh, We can talk about that. But I'm going to present, at least this morning, what I think baptism is meant in these different questions. Why, how, who, when, what does it all mean in baptism? Let's start with why be baptized. I have three reasons why be baptized. The first one is this. 
And it's very simple because Christ commanded it. In Matthew 28, we read these words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And for those of us who know who Jesus is, we don't need more than that. Jesus commands it, okay, I'll do it. (laughs) But if you were like me growing up in a home, when my mom said, when I asked why can't I have more ice cream, and she said because I said so, that was enough, but it wasn't very satisfying, was it? (laughs) I wanted to know more, why? I think there's other reasons why we can add to the simple observation that God commands it. And the second is because you want to follow Christ's example. Somebody who's a Christian understands that what they are is they're called to be a Christ follower, a sincere from the heart imitator of his example. And Jesus himself was baptized. In, the, in those days, I'm reading from Mark 1, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And he did that, I think, primarily, or maybe one of the reasons why he did that was as an example for us. And third, because it shows you are a believer. This is the third reason why. It's really intended, I think, as this decisive public moment where you go public that you're a follower of Jesus. It says in Acts 18, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. In the Bible, baptism is the decisive public way of taking a stand and proclaiming that you have become a follower of Jesus. Baptism does not make a person a Christian. We know this because at least one person is saved in the Bible who was never baptized. And that's the thief on the cross next to Jesus, of whom Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, that person, in coming to faith, never had a chance to be baptized. Yet nevertheless, Jesus assures him that he will be in heaven. I think we're on firm footing in saying that no one is saved because they're baptized, But baptism follows a sincere conversion into the faith. In the Bible, salvation is only ever always presented as being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what it means to receive the faith as a little child, somebody who can't do for themselves. Right? Like even now, Miles is not, Charlie is not really a pahidion, my youngest, he's five-year-old. He's a little older, maybe, than what Jesus was envisioning. But even now, in the morning, he can't scramble himself eggs. If he's hungry, in fact, the other day he opened the refrigerator and got out a gallon of milk and I almost had a heart attack. I was like, oh, he's going to spill it all over the place. He managed it somehow, but I don't think he could manage the whole gallon to pour himself a bowl of cereal, right? He can't do for himself. And so when we're talking about receiving the kingdom, entering the kingdom as a child, we're saying we receive it as somebody who can't do it for themselves, who needs help, who needs a savior not somebody who saves themselves. And so it does not get it. Some people have gotten this mixed up, and they think that baptism is essential for salvation. And I would disagree with that categorically, because then it makes man the agent of their own salvation. You're being saved by works. Baptism doesn't save you. Only your faith in Christ does that. But it does provide every believer with an important opportunity to proclaim and celebrate the truth of the gospel and what that means for them personally. Baptism is more like a wedding ring. It's the outward symbol of the inner commitment you made in your heart. Matthew 10 says this, 
Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Christian faith is meant to be proclaimed and celebrated, not be hidden away as a secret, private thing. And baptism is an important time when a believer takes a decisive and public stand to say, I am a follower of Jesus. This brings us to our next one. How are we to be baptized? Well, this might even be a more controversial topic in our interdenominational Christian living, right? Some denominations sprinkle. Some denominations dunk. I would love to find a denomination that uses a water gun or something like that. Maybe we could have like a water slide that goes, that would be awesome. But the base, basic answer, how are we to be baptized? Again, the Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice. And when we go to the Bible, we don't find any example of baptism except by immersion. Jesus was baptized by immersion. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So he went up from the water. It took place in a river. And the picture is clear that he was dunked by his cousin John down into the water, and then he came up from the water. Another example. In the story of uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we studied that in Acts. It says, And he commanded the chariot to stop. That's the Ethiopian. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water... The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. That's that idea of coming up out of the water. He was immersed. He was pushed down into the water. In fact, the word baptize in the Greek literally means, it comes from baptizo, which means to dip under water. And it's most commonly used in the trades to describe the process by which something is dyed. If you were going to take a, a fabric or something like that and dye it, you would completely immerse it. In, the, in whatever the color was that it was being dyed. That's to baptizo, the cloth, would be to completely submerge it in the water. Well, we'll get into this a little more when we talk about the symbolic significance or meaning of baptism, but baptism by immersion is also the best way to represent what it is meant to depict, the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Martin Luther once remarked, I would have those who are to be baptized be entirely immersed as the word imparts and the mystery signifies. And we'll come to this more in just a second about what the mystery signifies, what is meant to be represented in baptism. The next question is, who should be baptized? And basically my answer here is very short, every person who believes in Christ. I uh, had the pleasure of witnessing a baptism when we lived in California of a woman who was in her late 90s. She had never been baptized, and she realized towards the end of her life that it was something that was missing, that it was an area where she had been disobedient. And so even though she was very old and frail, I remember they wheeled her out onto the pool deck in her wheelchair. Um, they took, it wasn't exactly by immersion because her health wouldn't allow it but they dumped an awful lot of water on that poor woman. <laughs> and she loved it. She was grinning. Good friend of mine, Dennis, it was his mother. I was talking with a man named Jack Dufour. He was on the camp board at the camp where I was working at the time, and he told me a story from his church that he went to 
uh, where there was a man, this is a large church now, like over a thousand people attended regularly, and there was an elder in the church, a real, somebody who was looked up to, who was getting older, and uh, they had a whole sermon series on baptism, and it just began to convict him in his heart that he had never been baptized, but he was afraid of being baptized because here he was an elder in the church and had never done it. And, and he thought, boy, if I, that's something that you should do when you're a new believer. Everybody assumes I've been baptized. It would be, just be too embarrassing. And finally, the conviction just got too much for him. And when they gave the invitation to come be baptized, in tears, he had to go do it. In fact, he'd come to church that day without a change of clothes like they had instructed everybody. He just went and did it anyway. He didn't care. In fact, in Acts 2, it says this, So those who received his word were baptized. And in Acts 8, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And in Acts 8, Simon himself believed and was baptized. The one requirement of baptism is belief in Jesus Christ. Here at State Road, we don't baptize infants or small children. Baptism is for those who are old enough to understand and speak clearly about their relationship to Jesus Christ through faith. That's my personal conviction. But that is something about which Christians of good conscience can and will disagree. But at least in practice here at State Road, I'm persuaded, and again, because the Bible never describes the baptism of a baby, that baptism is something that should be exercised by those who have come to a mature, personal statement about their own faith, their own belief in Jesus. Interestingly here at this point, the earliest mentions of baptism in our, old, in our New, New Testament, I'm sorry, are when John the Baptist went baptizing the baptism of repentance. And in the Jewish tradition, the only way that somebody would become baptized is if they were a Gentile convert to Judaism. So you had been outside the community of faith, now you've converted, so like the Ethiopian. In coming to faith, he would have been baptized into Judaism. And so it was a very uh, provocative thing for John the Baptist to tell Jews, you have to be baptized. He was saying to them, you're outside. You're deceived into thinking you're in a saving relationship with your God. But you're sinners. You need to be baptized. You need to repent. You still have a sin problem that has separated you and cut you off from God the Father. And so when Jesus commands everyone who comes to faith to be baptized, he is saying, at least in the, coming in the milieu out of which Christianity emerged, Judaism, it's heavy with meaning of being made part of the new family. That's also part of it. So, who is to be baptized? If you've put your trust in Jesus for salvation, the command is clear. Baptism should follow. Which brings up another question, when? Well, today maybe. We have one person who has, um, is going to be baptized, but that doesn't mean there can't be more. I'm not somebody who's terribly comfortable with being spontaneous, but I'll be spontaneous <laughs> If anybody wants to be baptized today, if you've put your trust in Jesus, I have a few simple questions. And if you can say those with a yes, we, you can be baptized today. But beyond that, the invitation stands anytime. When somebody comes to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, and they say to me, Pastor Josh, that has happened for me. 
I'm now a Christian. I'll tell you what, I'll fill this baptism up or we'll go down and chainsaw a hole in the river, whatever you want to do, we'll do it. It is appropriate to be baptized as soon as you become a believer. Again, in Acts 2, it says, many of them believed and were baptized that day. And that brings us to the question, what? What does baptism mean? What does it represent? Well, one very important passage for our understanding here is Romans 6, 4 through 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So what is represented in baptism is this. Baptism depicts being united to Christ in his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Or as Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. All your sin died with him on the cross and went into the grave with him. It also depicts, baptism depicts being united to Christ in his life. It's like if all you did was get shoved down into the water but never brought up, it would just be about death. (laughs) Baptism would be about killing somebody. But that's not what we do. We push you down into the water, and then I promise, Tristan, I'll bring you back up, right? I promise. And that's why it's really a celebration of life. Just as Jesus went into the grave, he didn't stay there. And just like the person who's being baptized go down into the water, they don't stay there. All their sin went into the grave, but they're raised unto newness of life, just as Jesus was raised. In Galatians 2.20, In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It also represents, and we started our communion this morning by talking about this idea, we're not only celebrating our union with Christ, but with the body of Christ, the church. In fact, at a at one of the camps we would host regularly, I've told you I used to work at a Christian campground in Southern California. And when they would have a baptism in that particular camp, I really liked their tradition. They would have all the kids in the camp come down and line the edge of the pool. And the person who'd put their trust in Jesus for salvation would go out and be baptized down into the water. They'd come back up, and then all the kids in the camp would jump into the water with them. And I always thought, that is such a fun picture of the unity of the body that we're all in here together. I like that that's how it wrapped, they wrapped up their baptism services. We're going to see how many of you we can fit in here today. <laughs> we're not really going to do that. <laughs> Ephesians 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in the hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And in 1 Corinthians 12, for even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit, for the body is not one member, but many." All that talk about slave and free, Jew and Gentile, all that's just saying we come from different places, but we are one. 
And communion and communion and baptism are not only a celebration of being united as one with Jesus, but also with his people, the church. One last thing it means. We talk a lot about union, but baptism is also a moment when you declare separation from some things. I, uh, we've all heard the story. I hope it's a true story. It might be apocryphal from the Alamo. When Colonel Travis, right, he takes his boot and he draws a line in the sand. Everybody who's with me come cross the line and people come over. Whenever you're united, unity is never a good goal in and of itself. Unity is only good depending on what you're united around. Isn't this true? Ananias and Sapphira in the Bible, they were united around a lie, but it wasn't a good unity. And so when we talk about being unified, we're talking about what we're unified around. And then one of the important things to recognize about unity is that you cannot be unified in something without also separating or dividing from something else. If I asked everyone in the room with blue eyes to stand, it would immediately, in your unity of blue-eyedness, separate you from all the brown eyes, right? It's just the way it works. And when we become baptized, we are telling the world, you can have this life, I'll take the next. We choose peace with God over peace with the world. We choose a future reward over an earthly one. We choose a cross in this life in order to receive a crown in the next. As Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We choose a better and abiding possession over the cheap and temporary things of this world. We choose truth over lies. We choose life over death. We choose to trust God rather than to try and be our own God, our own Savior. We choose the Great Commission cause as the great cause of our lives, and we say no to the pursuit of other things as central to who we are. We choose obedience over disobedience. We choose to proclaim rather than be silent. Make no mistake, baptism is absolutely a crossing of the line in the sand. Remember the words of John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Baptism is the moment when you declare plainly for all to see that you are one with Christ and his church. That is where your hope lies. You died with Christ when he died. And when he was raised from the grave, you were raised into newness of life. Today, because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you are a new creation. The old has passed, the new has come. This world has been crucified to you and you to the world. You've been united to Christ and have been given new desires, new wants, a new capacity for obedience. This is what all, all of this is what baptism represents. At this time, I'm going to pray, and the worship team will come up for one other song, and I'll ask if uh, Tristan, you'll step out the side door and go around into the baptism, I'll meet you back there. And if anybody else wants to be baptized, you can do that today or any other time that you want, but I would invite you to go down to my office if you would like to be baptized today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the gospel truth that Jesus has done for us all that is necessary for hope and eternal life. Father, I'm grateful for Tristan, 
for his desire this morning to go public and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's who I am. Father, I just pray that in this brief moment of baptism, God, that that action would speak louder than all the words I've had to say here today. God, this was meant by you as a time to proclaim what our hope is in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would do that powerfully now in this baptism. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.